Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Happy New Year to all of you. Belated Happy New Year. Let me invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 if you want to follow along in the scripture that we'll be considering. And once you get to Matthew chapter 7, uh, put your finger there and then turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Matthew chapter 7 and 2 Corinthians 13. And before I read the scripture passage this morning, I do want to mention uh, one thing, and that is in the month of January, we have our biggest outreach event of the year. It's coming up on the last Friday in January. It's called the Life in Print Dinner. And this year, our speaker is Daryl Strawberry, the former baseball great, who um, rose to the very pinnacle of fame as a great athlete and then destroyed his life through a lot of self-destructive choices, and then the Lord put it back together again. He is going to be speaking here on Friday night, January 28th. You're invited to come. Uh, You can go to the website for information, and remember that to come, you must bring a lost guest. This is for, uh, this event is for the lost, and um, this is our opportunity to expose people to the gospel through a story that will leave a deep imprint on people's hearts. Now, if you got your Bibles open to Matthew 7, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, let me read this quote before I read the scripture passage. We received an email this week from a lady in a suburb of Jackson, Mississippi, and the email read as follows. I've been struggling for some time with my salvation. I once felt peace with God and trusted in Christ for for the forgiveness of my sins. Then I began to lose what I thought was love for God. I began to really examine myself and saw the blackness of my heart, how I didn't love God and didn't see the fruit of the Spirit, which I thought I had before. I began questioning if I was deceived or was like the seed that fell on the shallow ground. I lack assurance and now feel that I can no longer claim the promises of God and the blood of Christ for my sin. I'm afraid that I'm like Esau or that I've trampled on the grace of God and lost my salvation or can no longer find mercy. I guess I'm desperately looking for some hope. That is why I am writing to you. I had a spirited conversation with this lady that I'll relate to you at the end of the sermon. But against the backdrop of that quote, let me read the scripture passage for today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? If so... Every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now turn over here, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. These are very sobering words from the scripture and it's hard for me to ever read these passages and not um, feel that soul tremor that maybe just maybe my connection with God is not real and that's a hard question to raise number one and it's a, um, a challenging question to answer And what we're seeing in our world today is a lot of shaking out, not only of people, but of spiritual leaders who at one point claimed and professed the name of Jesus, but are today denying the very thing that they once professed. These are scary things. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this because as you're looking into the scriptures we've read this morning, you can see that Jesus warned that there will be many who will talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. And what I want you to notice from that Matthew passage is that the verse which says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, did we not perform miracles, cast out demons, and prophesy in your name? I want you to notice that those people were churched Christian people, just like me and you. These aren't the fire-breathing pagans outside the church that we'd like to think of. They do those things, but these are people that were in the midst of the work of the Lord and miraculous things were happening through them, and yet there was a disconnect between the work of God flowing through them and the will of God being obeyed in their own lives. So we turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and we find this admonition which says to examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. The Corinthian church was a very turbulent church, and there was a lot of scandalous things going on even inside the church. And so Paul ended his second epistle by saying, examine yourselves to see whether the faith of God, the true faith, has been fully and authentically internalized in your life. Now, that verse which says, examine yourselves, I believe is one of the most relevant verses today to the church. That verse calls us to the discipline of self-examination. That means to be open to look within and to see what you find in your heart. And this is a discipline that's not practiced well uh, in our church today because we're so, we're moving so quickly. We don't have time to really stop and inventory what's happening within us. Well, what I want you to understand is that if you take up this challenge to examine yourself, the Bible does give us a criteria by which to do that. In other words, you don't just stand in the mirror and open up your heart and say, okay, God, is is this real to me or not? But there are several tests of life that the Bible gives us by which we may examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. And if you got one of the sermon outlines on the way in today, 
you will be able to write these things down as I go through them. You're going to see them up here on the screen. And let me introduce these tests of life to you in hopes that this will help you identify any disconnect that might be in your relationship with the Lord and to move from what I call salvation confusion to salvation clarity. When I talk to people today as a director of evangelism here, I find that lots of people don't have even a vocabulary by which to examine themselves. And this morning I want to introduce you to this idea, give you the criteria that the Bible gives us by which we can introduce, we can examine ourselves in hopes that this will have a confirming effect upon your faith. Now, if you look up here, uh, I'm going to explain this to you by use of a visual. So you, it'll correspond to your notes and it'll be easy to write down and you can follow along. Now, <clears throat> salvation is that experience by which a person moves from unbelief to belief. Most of us know that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to put a magnifying glass on that point in the midline between unbelief and belief. And I want to magnify the experience of salvation so that you can see exactly what the Bible says about it. And so the first thing I want you to understand, the first test of life that, that the Bible gives us is this. The Bible says that to be an authentic believer in Jesus Christ, there's one, at least one thing everyone must do, and it is they must be born again. This theme is found in several places in the New Testament, but no one championed the idea of being born again more than Jesus himself. In a conversation with a very religious man, Nicodemus, he was a leader of the Jews. He knew the scripture backwards and forwards, was a self-righteous person doing everything that he could to make sure that he met God's requirements. And Jesus dismissed his righteousness outright and said, Nicodemus, let's get this cut to the chase and get to the point. Unless you're born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how do we define what it means to be born again? Let me give you a working definition of that. To be born again, it means to have the life of God in the soul of man. When one is born again, it means that they have the life of God in the soul of man. When we're born again, the spirit of God, and the word spirit means life, enters into our dead hearts and gives us life so that we're born again. We've already been born physically, but then we're born spiritually when the life of God enters the soul of man. This is mentioned several places in the Bible. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, it speaks of the valley of dry bones in which God told Ezekiel to breathe upon them. And all of a sudden, these dead bones suddenly took on flesh and sinew and stood up and began to breathe. And that passage is an image in the Old Testament of the Spirit of God coming upon a person, entering their soul and giving them life. And so the transition is not from bad to good. It's not just from unbelief to belief, but it's from death to life. And when that occurs, when the, death, when the life of God enters the soul of man, it's at that point that we are born again or we now have spiritual life. A prelude to that being born again is what I call an awakening experience. In the parable of the prodigal son, it says that the prodigal son took the father's inheritance, took off to a foreign land, lived a very unruly life. When a famine struck the land, he ran out of money. He finds himself even feeding pigs. And it says he came to his senses. 
That means he was awakened to the horrible situation he put himself in and saw his need of the Heavenly Father, so he returned to his Father. We are born again usually when we are awakened to the painful distance between ourselves, our sinful selves, and God, and the need to do something about it. So awakening and being born again kind of go together. C.S. Lewis describes his experience this way. He had been wrestling with whether there was a God or not for a long time, wasn't sure what he believed about God, and one day he was riding on the way to the zoo with his brother, and he said, on the way to the zoo, I was not a Christian. On the way from the zoo, I was a Christian. Somewhere on that bus ride, on the way to the zoo and leaving the zoo, he was born again, and he just knew it. It just struck him. And this born-again experience is the taproot of all that God does in a person's heart once they become a Christian. This born-again experience puts life inside of a person, and then it creates ripples in a person's life that all move a person toward God and away from the world in sin. Now, let's talk about these next steps. Now, after a person is born again, they experience a form of conversion, And conversion simply means a recalibration or a metamorphosis that happens in one's life. In Romans chapter 6, it says this. It says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 11. And what it's saying there is that once a person is born again, this overhaul this recalibration, this reorientation begins to happen in the life of a person. With some people, it's very pronounced. With other people, it's very subtle and gradual. But nonetheless, that conversion does begin to take place. And it's kind of like this. Picture yourself in a car in which the wheels are badly out of alignment. And as you're driving down the highway, the car naturally pulls to the right or to the left. And you can hold the steering wheel and make it go straight, but without your external uh, pressure on the steering wheel, the car will go to the right or to the left. And then you take the car in, and it gets a realignment. And then you get back on the highway, and you notice that the car goes straight without your externally having to hold the steering wheel. Well, that's what happens at conversion, is that God gives us a new alignment of our hearts in which now we're moving down the straight path, straight down the path of life, and we're not swerving to the left or to the right. And that conversion happens inside of every person who's truly born again. Picture the idea of a butterfly, or I'm sorry, of a caterpillar that enters into a chrysalis or a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. That conversion is very distinct and real, moving from a caterpillar to a butterfly. That image is also an image of how we are converted from a life that is turned away from God to a life that is turned toward God. So this conversion experience takes on expression in the following two ways. Let me explain it to you further. First of all, a spirit of repentance enters into the life of a person who's truly converted and born again. The word repent itself means a change, a change of mind. And their spirit of repentance comes over a person who's born again and that their mind is changed toward sin. 
In other words, they had their faces towards sin and their backs toward God. When you repent, you turn your back towards sin and your face toward God. And so repentance speaks of um, this change that is an intentional rejection of sin and evil and anything that's displeasing to God. And Jesus mentioned this in his first sermon when he said, repent and believe the gospel. Now that's the negative side of conversion, repentance and turning away. The positive side of conversion is faith. And faith turns us toward God so that now that our backs that were toward God are now toward sin and our faces toward the Lord. Faith is a very dynamic word in the scripture and it, it's best understood as the idea of an embrace. In other words, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, once you're born again, you embrace or you reach out and hold near the person of Jesus. You reach out to him in his, and you receive his offer of the gift of eternal life and the offer of salvation. And without any question in your heart or your mind, you embrace him. In John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, it says, as many as received him, even to those who believe on his name, to, give, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Notice that faith involves not just believing, but receiving. And the idea of receiving is like an embrace. It's like a hug. It means to reach out to the Lord Jesus and to hold him near. Uh, let me give you a simple faith acrostic that I use with people that are not yet Christians. And it's the word faith, F-A-I-T-H. And let's let the word F stand for forsaking, A-all-I. The T stands for take and the H stands for him. Forsaking all, I trust him. That's what faith is. And so faith and repentance are evidence of our conversion. <clears throat> and repentance is like this alarm system inside of you. Many of you probably have alarm systems in your home, but you don't always set the alarm, right? Sometimes you come and go in the house and the alarm system's off. So when you enter in and out of the house, the alarm is not set off. Repentant, the repentant tendency in the unbeliever is like an, arm, like an alarm that's not been set. It doesn't detect sin and evil coming out of a person's life. When you become a Christian, it's like setting the alarm so that any entry into the home that's not supposed to be there is immediately detected. So when a person is repented, it's like their alarm has been set. And anyone coming into the, in, exiting or entering the process, the property is detected. So when we have, when we're converted, we have faith and we have repentance. And when we have repentance, we have an alarm that's set to detect evil coming into our lives. And we immediately are able to detect it and to deal with it. Now, the next thing I want to point out to you about one who is truly converted, and this is the next test of life, is what I would call good works. Perhaps the greatest point of confusion that I encounter with people is what is the role that good works play in the life of a true believer. 95% of people when asked the question today, if you were to die today, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And if you were to die and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? 95% of people today say, God should let me into heaven because I'm good. So they are believing that their good works are the grounds of their salvation. Let me change that paradigm for you. Good works are not the grounds of our salvation, they are the proof of our salvation. And the Bible says that when we are truly born again, when we, we embrace the Lord Jesus and repent of our sins, 
that he creates within us a zeal for good works. Titus 2, 14 says that Jesus gave to himself uh, to re- gave himself to redeem a people who were zealous for good works. So good works are something that our hearts are inclined toward once we're born again, but those good works have absolutely no merit before the throne of God in terms of our salvation. So do good works have a role? Of course they do. They're like the pulse indicating that the heart is beating. There's no life in good works in terms of getting us to heaven. There's no meritorious power, but good works are the things that we do and we do to honor the Lord out of gratitude. We do good works out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. We don't have to do good works to add to what Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is perfect and therefore sufficient for our salvation. Why then are good works necessary? They are the pulse that proves that your heart is beating. They are the manifestation done with a motive of gratitude that you want to honor the Lord. One of the early ways when I became a Christian at age 20 that I began to have a zeal for good was toward policemen. When I was a non-Christian, the last five years before I became a Christian, I was a lawless individual. I never met a law that I liked. I was always breaking the law in my little hometown in Alabama. And when I saw a policeman, it reminded me that I was a lawbreaker and I didn't like policemen. I saw them and I went the other direction. Then I became a Christian. All of a sudden, I found myself being warm and friendly to policemen. I liked these people. They were there to enforce the law and to make sure people, when they stepped out of line, were held accountable for what they did. So my heart changed from disliking policemen to liking policemen. And the Bible says that policemen are here as an extension of God's authority to restrain evil and to protect what is good. And so my heart naturally inclined toward caring about policemen once I became a Christian. That's how it manifested in my life. And it probably manifested in your life in different ways. So along with being born again, we are converted changed. That that takes on the expression of faith and repentance. And then we're inclined to do good things out of gratitude for what the Lord has done for us. Now, in addition addition to this, there are also these things called the sacraments. And there's a great deal of confusion among people today, in the hearts of people, about what role the sacraments play once a person is born again. Let's talk for just a second. First of all, the word sacrament is nowhere found in the Bible. It is a Latin word, compound word, sacra munde. Munde means mystery and sacra means sacred. So the sacraments are sacred mysteries that God has given to us to observe once we are converted. Okay? Baptism points to spiritual birth. Communion points to to spiritual growth. Because baptism points to spiritual birth, we should only be baptized once. I heard a Baptist preacher say one time, you know, some of you people think that if you're baptized, you're a Christian. And you've been baptized so many times that the tadpoles know your social security number. That's a, a bit of an overstatement, but I appreciate your point that every time we join a church or move from one neighborhood to the next, we get baptized. You're only supposed to be baptized once because it points to your birth. When you're born again, 
then you are baptized to symbolize that inner reality. But then once you are born again and you start to walk, you grow, then you need nourishment. And communion is designed to nurture your growth. It is to sustain your growth. And both of these sacraments are in the Reformed tradition in which we stand. They are means of grace, which, which that they are. But we don't, ever want to com- we don't ever want to confuse observance of the sacraments with becoming a Christian. People do think that once I've been baptized, so that makes me a Christian. Well, being in McDonald's doesn't make you a french fry. <clears throat> and being in a garage doesn't make you a car. Nothing external is going to change your heart internally. The sacraments are expressions, outward expressions of inward realities, and a proper observance of the sacraments do fit into, do fit into as one of the tests of life by which we can confirm that we're believers. So that when we come to the Lord's table, and we're going to do that later, it has that strengthening effect upon us. But we don't do it to earn God's favor, and we don't get baptized to earn God's favor. It's just a part of the growth process. And then finally, there's one more thing I want to draw your attention to, and that is that for all people who meet these tests of life, the Bible speaks of assurance of one's salvation. In other words, can we know that we know that we know that we are Christians in this life? Or do we just live this life out hoping that one day when we stand before God, we're, we're going to meet the test requirements? Well, one of the greatest blessings the Bible gives to us is the idea of assurance. In 1 John five thirteen, it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know, K-N-O-W, know that you have eternal life, that you may know that. I was talking with a gentleman the other day. And uh, I said, if you were to die today, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? And he said, oh, in my religion, you're never really quite sure. And I said, you're right. Your religion is set up to make sure you don't ever believe that you're going to heaven. It's designed to keep you on your toes so that your obedience is crisp and hopes that you'll God will grade on a curve and that the great things you did will outweigh the, thing, the bad things that you did and you'll be okay. But you know what? That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that we can be secure in God's love. And we use the term eternal security to go with that. And so the Bible does speak of being sure that we are in the Father's love. And picture it like this. Picture a father in a swimming pool with a little boy. And at all depths of the pool, the water is deeper than the height of the little boy. But the father, because that little boy is trusting in his father, that father can move all over the swimming pool and the little boy's water never goes below the surface of the water. Now his head staying above the surface of the water has nothing to do with his ability to swim but it has to do with him being in the embrace of his father's love who keeps him above water. So our, our assurance is not based upon presumption of our goodness, but it's based upon confidence in God's promise. And if what Jesus did was to offer the all-sufficient sacrifice for sins, and that that is all that we need to get to heaven, then if our trust is in him, then we can be assured that we have eternal life. 
Now, <clears throat> these tests of life that I've just given you, these are, these are here to help you build confidence in your faith. They're not designed to condemn you, but these things are designed to build confidence and they are designed to confirm that you have a connection with God. Now, remember the lady that I mentioned to you a second ago who wrote us an email this week and said, I've lost my sense of security with God. What do I do now? Well, I immediately responded to her email and said, love to talk to you. Please send me your phone number. I'll be in touch in the next 24 hours. She did. And she, or I put my phone number down and I said, please call me. So she called me and here's what she said. I've been a professing believer for much of my life. I've gone in and out of churches, and um, recently I've just kind of lost my way. And I said, well, has anything cataclysmic happened in your life in the last month? She said, yeah, my husband committed suicide over Christmas. Heavenly days. And I said, um, seriously? She said, yeah. And I said, well, first of all, ma'am, you're in a grieving process. And I said, secondly, have you got any support where you are? And she said, not really. And she just joined a big church in this, next to this big city she lived. And I said, you're also suffering from severe isolation. And if you're an introspective type person, you will turn inward on yourself. And you'll start to doubt your salvation, whether that's fair or not. So we went through these tests of life. And the only thing we could come up with that was out of line were she was doing little things like maybe driving above the speed limit when she shouldn't. <laughs> Well, if I had to doubt my salvation every time I drove above the speed limit, that'd be a daily occurrence or maybe a morning occurrence, okay? So I pointed out to her, I said, ma'am, everything's in place. You just need to recognize that you're in a grieving context right now and that you need a local community where you can find support. So I got on the phone to a church in her community, talked to the pastor, connected those guys, and hopefully she'll start going to this community church where she can get some support. And hopefully the examination we did of her heart was designed to confirm that, yes, you are a believer, but there's some things you do need to do to put yourself in the right place to be in a, in, in a healthy place in a relationship with the Lord. So these tests of life are not designed to make you doubt your salvation. They're just designed to confirm that these are vital signs that your relationship with God is healthy. So with that in mind, let's take communion this morning. And it's interesting that this idea of self-examination that I just read to you about from 2 Corinthians is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it talks about taking communion. It says to examine yourselves and then partake of the Lord's Supper. And so what I have the pleasure of doing this morning is to uh, walk you through the Lord's Supper. And remember that we said a moment ago that proper observance of the Lord's Supper is part of a healthy connection with the Lord. And the Bible reads as follows when it comes to taking communion. It says, The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Take and eat, and when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took a cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We celebrate the all-sufficient death of Christ on the cross for our sins, upon which our salvation is based. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We need to reverently partake. The passage ends with this statement. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So with these thoughts in mind from the scriptures today, let's come to uh, the Lord's table. And remember how we do it here is in one of these little things, you have this bread in the top. And so you peel that off and then you turn it over and there's wine and then you dip in the wine and you, you take it, the juice and you take it. That's how we do that here. So let me ask the Lord's blessing upon communion and you guys can come forward as how I understand that you do it in this service and just partake as you feel led to. But let me just say this, and let me be straightforward with you. I owe you the truth as a pastor. If your heart is not right with the Lord today, and this sermon provoked a concern inside of you that maybe you're not connected to the Lord, you might want to wait. But also you need to talk to somebody, and I'd be glad to talk to you. If you need to make sure your connection is right and healthy, come see me. I can help you with that. But on the other hand, if you haven't examined yourself, you feel comfortable coming forward, then do so. And let me pray for these elements. Lord, thank you today that your death upon the cross is all sufficient. It's perfect. We can't add anything to that. And once we put our trust in that, you send your spirit within us by which we're born again. Our lives are recalibrated. Through faith and repentance, we turn away from sin and evil and toward you. And we become zealous for what is good out of gratitude for what you've done for us. And we have the opportunity to partake of these sacraments to remind us that you died for us and you care for us. And we also have the privilege of walking out of this service confirmed and assured that we belong to you and that no matter what happens to us in the next five minutes, if our life ends, we are going to spend an eternity with you. And now bless the hearts of those that are coming forward with a sense of renewal of their connection with you. And for anyone who's struggling with this, it needs to be resolved in their lives. And I pray that they would do like the lady uh, did this week when she emailed us. We'll step forward and ask for help. And we commend all of this into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.